Hi, I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And you're listening to Hawk Talk. Where we talk hawks. Normally, if you were on this podcast, you would be listening to Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, a weekly podcast about the ins, outs, retcons, clones, and time travel of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, which is, among other things, professionally produced and edited. This is not. But every fourth week, we do an episode of Hawk Talk, where we talk about other stuff. And for a while, that was just random topics that we would pick at the last minute. For the last number of episodes, it's been topics chosen by folks who donated a certain amount to the Equality Florida fundraiser we did back in April. Um, so what are today's hawks, and by whom have they been brought to us? So today's hawks are unique and new. This is the first hawk talk that we, I think, have ever done that had a third person on it. That being the person who chose the topic, that being Jedzia Axelrod. And today's hawks are Galaxy the Prettiest Star, um, a new graphic novel by Jadzia Axelrod, and I'm going to double-check their name, um, Jess Taylor, from out, out from D.C. a couple months ago. So yeah. Jadzia, welcome. Thank you. It is wonderful to be here. This is, I think, I think my favorite podcast. Aww. I think that's true. This is the only one that I have to listen to the day it comes out. Everybody else, they, they wait. Oh, thank, oh, you. thank you. Thank you. Guys very, very flattered. Right off the bat, should warn you that that Hawk Talk, um, as compared to Jay and Miles explain the X Men, is is very, very off the cuff. It's you know, <laughs> unedited and and unplanned, largely. Yeah, unplanned. no, I've listened to those too. I don't okay. skip those. <laughs> All right. Oh. So, so you, you you don't you don't get the smooth Jay and Miles this time. You get the the sort of the the, the rough homegrown Jay and Miles. Well, I, I'm prepared. I'm ready. I've got on my uh, thick hiking boots so I can handle the rough terrain, Jane Miles, that we are in. But did you bring currently. a machete? I did not, and that is my mistake. Uh, I normally bring one everywhere I go, but I, I chose to leave it at home this time, and that, again, my mistake. We have spares if need be. It's all good. That, that's oh, one thing we try to prepare. See, again, this is why you're my favorite podcast. Spare <laughs> machetes. <laughs> got to be prepared when you're going to talk about hawks. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Indeed. So, uh, yes, you wrote a, a graphic novel, and, and we read it, did. and we're, we were very pleased that we actually liked it a lot. You sound shocked <laughs> by this, which is kind of ridiculous, because it looked really good going Oh, it did in. look really good. No, uh, it just would have been, would have been awkward if not. But no, it's, it's freaking great. So, uh, nicely done, and yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. Thank you. Uh, I realize it is not X-Men, um, but I feel like there is some overlap. So the audience who enjoys an X-Man comic will enjoy this uh, comic about a um, gay, trans, alien teenager with superpowers. It's a good thing that it's not X-Men, because if it were X-Men, it wouldn't be allowed on Hawk Talk. Because this is, this is a, not <laughs> exactly right. no X-Men zone, but a no X-Men centering zone. Yeah, so it's, it works out. It works out. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've given us the very basic premise. Can you tell us a little bit more and listeners a little bit more about the book itself? Sure. Uh, the essential idea is that it's about Taylor Barsley, who is in a sparkly alien princess in exile. She is hiding out on Earth um, because her home planet, Siandi, was conquered by an alien race called the Bane. Um, and she's hiding out and she and a few other refugees are all disguised as humans. And she in particular is disguised as a human boy. Um, And the story, she's been in this disguise for about six years. She's 16 when the story starts. And um, what happens is that a new girl moves to town and Taylor starts to think that this disguise is not worth keeping up anymore. And it becomes harder and harder to do so. And by the end of the book, she is her wonderful, glorious alien princess self. 
I love that she's simultaneously a metaphor and also a very, very literal representation of, of what she Thank is. Thank you. Yeah, that was the goal. Um, yes. Because I, I do get tired of, like, when it's the metaphor, but they're not actually trans. And uh, I didn't want to do that for certain. But also I did want to have the sci-fi rigmarole because I wanted... I didn't want people to get hung up on the specificities of being a trans feminine person. I wanted it to be able to, uh, people who were um, cis, for example, but also trans mask and non-binary and that they could still see themselves in these, in the story. And I'm very fortunate that I think I've done that because I've gotten a lot of feedback from people of all sorts of walks of life telling me how much they saw themselves in this book. So that yeah. worked. Yeah, there's yeah. a specific moment um, where she trans she's trans she's transformed. I think for the second time into her her true form, and mm-hmm. she's talking about her horns and that that she you know they 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 didn't grow at a time when she had this form at all. Like they're a post puberty thing, and just the experience of that the the weird time jump experience of of being trans and of coming out post puberty is mm-hmm. so beautifully encapsulated in that moment. Thank you. And actually, <clears throat> talking about those horns, before we dive into the plot too much, let's talk a little about the art, because god damn, the art in this book. <clears throat> Jess is amazing. Like, they are a wizard. I am just, I was blown away as every page came in, and then to look at the book as a whole was just incredible. So did yeah. you two develop the pitch together, or did Jess come in later? Jess came in later. The pitch was originally mine. Um <clears throat> But we had a lot of conversations about how things would look and the shape of things and um, what characters would act. We went through so many variations of how Taylor would look because we were not just designing a character. We were designing a whole alien race. Mm -hmm. So the idea was like, all right, but this is what she looks like. But how would other people look like from CND? And Mm -hmm. uh, that whole thing was... It took us a lot. We went through a lot of horn shapes is all I'm going to say. <laughs> a lot of horn shapes to get to the right look. And we did. I'm very happy with what we did. And so is Jess. But it took a long time. I would like to note that like the tasteful and professional adult I am, I am avoiding all of the obvious puns here. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <clears throat> but yeah, the the art. Um, I also really appreciate that like... When Taylor, when we see Taylor's true form, like clearly she is, she's a different species than the people around her. She, she's an alien, but the art style, like she just still fits so perfectly into the visuals of the world. Like there's this, uh, I don't know. There's just, just this uniqueness to the art style, this kind of like softness and these novel angles that it almost looks like the world is kind of trying to live up to her design almost. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, the, the did Jess do the uh, the colors as well, or yes, the they painted the whole thing um, digitally. But cool. Yeah, yeah. That, for me, that was one of the most visually striking elements of the entire book. Like the colors are just so so engaging and loud in a way that is not garish, but is just exciting. I guess. Well, and narratively effective. The way that mm-hmm. they introduce secondary colors, mostly in context of, of the transformation and in context of, of Taylor's true form and the things she experiences and perceives and does around that. And then also when, um, when Kat shows up and, and everything else is sort of that, that stark kind of almost, cause they've, they've, they've got a like fifties 
kids illustration paper cut feel to 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 their art like just enough of it that that difference in palette and that difference in texture is is really really effective yeah also yeah, they're a wizard incredible fashion too he's talking about cat especially but like uh taylor later as the story goes on too like man i wish i could look that cool everyone looks really cool in this book yeah i sent just so many fashion references um which is a thing i do as a writer and other artists who have worked with me know this is that i will plaster that script with like this is how they're dressed and they're wearing this jacket and that's not um so the uh I, I can't take full credit for the fashion because some of that is just but also, I did a lot of research for the right kind of outfits for each character. Um, and I was pleased that we did get a trying on clothes montage, which is a trope that I always uh, enjoy in fiction. It's the, it's so good, especially if you have a scene where you have to get a lot of exposition out of the way. Just mm-hmm. have everyone change clothes while they talk about it. The trying on clothes montage gives me a, a perfect, if somewhat bumpy segue to, to something I've been wanting to talk about since I first read the back cover copy of the book. Um, and that is to magical girls, and especially to one of one of the original um, magical female characters, and that being Ozma of Oz. Because yes. even I was I was so happy to see those Oz references thrown in. Because my first thought when I read about the book was, "Oh my god, this has such tip energy!" Right uh, on purpose. Like it was definitely done with a with a feeling of that. Because I was all I've always been disappointed with uh, Tip slash Ozma. And that whole idea is wonderful. So, I, but it's never really explored in a way that I I've, I wanted because it was done in the eighteen hundreds and not with a trans lens in mind. But, yeah. Uh, so this was de- absolutely a chance to kind of take that trope and and retell it in a way, and and I lampshaded it by calling the place Ozma Gap, where yes. she lives, and there's... Is this Mombi Pizza, I noticed. Mombi Pizza. <laughs> My one regret about this book is we never visit Mombi Pizza, which uh, we refer to a bunch, and we never actually go, and it would just be really nice just to uh, have visited there. So, it's absolutely horrible pizza, so... <laughs> I would hope so. Gotten, yeah, yep. right? A lot of severed heads. Uh, so I feel like for, for listeners who are not familiar with, with Ozma and the, the tip storyline, um, I only vaguely am myself, uh, would one of you like to, to explain what we're talking about? Jadzia, you want to go for it? Sure. So in the second Oz book, the name of which escapes me because they the all land run of together Oz. in my head. Thank you. In the Land of Oz, uh, we don't have Dorothy. Um, what we do is we have a main character called Tip, who is kept prisoner by Mombi uh, and escapes and has adventures. Um, a lot of the plot is actually uh, made into uh, the movie Return to Oz, um, but with other stuff from other Oz books thrown in there. So it's like mismatch. But anyway, in the end, it's revealed that Tip was actually Princess Ozma, who's been missing this whole time. And she turns back into Princess Ozma. And there's a wonderful line um, where Ozma steps forward and meets the the friends she's been with, the gump, the humbug, and all that, and says, why are you guys acting so weird? I'm still me. And I think it's the pumpkin head who says, yeah, but you're different. And everyone thought how wise that was, or something along those lines. And it's 
an accurate trans uh, assessment there. And then later, um, Ozma continues to be a character in the books. There's a kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink sort of romance between her and Dorothy, which is either there or not, depending on how you want to read it. It's it's one um, of those late 19th century, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly romantic re- relationships between girls that, that whether it's subtext or fashion is entirely unclear. And so you get to read exactly what you need to out of it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's something that always struck with me. Uh, and I couldn't help but put my spin on it with this book. So is, is Kat the Dorothy in this scenario? Because I, I would almost have read her more as, as, as a scraps. Yes, Kat's more of a scraps, I would say. It's been so long since I've read the book, I can't honestly say which is which. I was afraid to read it before writing this book because I, I didn't want to end up stealing too much. <laughs> too directly, so, that makes sense. Yeah, so I was like, I'm just going to get the spirit because that's all I want. And I, I don't want this to be a, a specific note by note. So if we're going to tie up at each character's, um, I guess Cat would be scraps, but I'm, I'm not certain. So we've touched or sort on, of a hybrid. Yeah. So we touched on like Taylor. We touched on Cat. There's also Taylor's family who, like we mentioned before, yes. they're also aliens. They're also disguised as humans. But also they're very much like a sort of human structured family uh, with Taylor. Um, That definitely seems to be an area where the whole this is a metaphor, but this is also like an actual thing uh, was was fascinatingly handled because we see kind of both of that with them. When you see we see very, very different experiences from those different members of the family, like all four of them relate to the experience of humanity and embodied humanity in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was, um, that was part of the fun, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term of, of this kind of story is to really explore um, how it would feel uh, to be in this, this situation, how it would feel to be Taylor, obviously, but also how it would feel to be a child who still remembers Siandi. Um, and has had to grow up on Earth with the knowledge that they are basically camouflage for someone else. Mm-hmm. And that, that if push comes to shove, they are expendable. Um, like uh, her older brother, brother in quotes, Carl. And then how to feel to be an adult and to have fled w- a war, but at the same time be constantly vigilant and constantly on edge that the war is going to follow you home. And then you have Sally, who has no memory of Sandy and has only grown up on Earth and thinks of herself as a human being and always will. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's interesting how that like intersects with with each of their investments or lack thereof and Taylor kind of keeping up the charade. And in this case, specifically keeping up the charade that Taylor is supposed to be seen as as a boy, like her father's uh, interaction with her in that regard as like her her sports coach on top of everything else was especially fascinating. Like he is, he, he ended up being a much more interesting character than I initially thought he would be like far yeah, more likewise. layered. I love that about him. Oh, thanks. Well, and it's, it's that, that is a place where I feel like metaphor becomes extremely powerful because it's a parent who is extremely, extremely invested in their child's gender normativity for the specific and genuinely felt reason of wanting them to stay safe. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And to really kind of blow that up in the operatic way that you can with superheroes. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's a, it's literal safety that, that he's so worried about. Um, yeah, I remember writing down uh, as they're having a, a confrontation later, just this exchange where he, I, I think it's him that says, hiding has been what's kept you safe. And she just says, then I won't be safe. And that was just like powerful. That was just like, oh, okay, this is, this is the book just kind of coming to this, this emotional head in this perfect, concise very real way. It's also a great moment because it underlines that Taylor has no idea what's coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And can just, as a teenager can be like, then I won't be safe there. Problem solved. <laughs> yup. Yup. So I have a bunch of questions that I feel like I shouldn't ask because they're questions that, cause I, I know you can't talk about whether or not there's going to be a sequel. And well, a lot I mean, of them are like, the 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 if there were a sequel, me, would sadly. you would you explore this specific thing or can you talk about and and one of the things that I'm I'm really really curious about um, is so so Galaxy the Prettiest Star is very much a standalone book like you don't need to be at all familiar with the DC universe to read it to understand it um, I mean there's there there are basically like two mentions of the larger DCU and those are Superman and the existence of Metropolis and mm-hmm. if you are and and even if you're actually even if you are the one person on earth who's not aware of those things, you'll follow just fine. Um, but at the same time, this is this is a, a kid who's an alien who's in this universe that's populated by aliens, by superheroes, by all of these extraordinary, extremely visibly non-normative people. And I'm really curious as to how much you thought about sort of that went into her experience and her identity growing up as as boy taylor and sort of the idea of hiding and what what it what it's like to hide in a universe where that many people are also that visible right and and i think that that was definitely something that came to mind and we we don't talk about it a whole lot but it's kind of um mentioned because there's a whole cat talks about there's a whole neighborhood in metropolis where aliens just walk around and it's cool and um Taylor's like, what, really? And has trouble getting her mind around it. And like, that's, it's definitely something. And it's, again, that sort of idea of, of using, using the alien metaphor to um, talk about queerness and transness in that. Because um, it can still seem very distant, even when you know that there's other people who do this. It's like, but um, no one around here is a visible alien. So I, mm-hmm. I don't feel like I can be in that same way that if you don't grow up in an area. Um, and even if you do, like I grew up in a rural um, community, but we were not far from Durham, which had, um, I don't know. See, yeah, I was a teenager, so I'm going to say thriving gay scene. It may not have been, it seemed like to me <laughs> <laughs> at the time. It, it does. I know um, it does now. So it does now. It had a it had a great uh, gay bar that let um, me and my friends in after pride parades, uh, even though we were underage. So that's my main memory <laughs> of the Durham gay scene. Uh, I know that bar is not there anymore, which is too bad. Uh, but like, and so they're out there, but at the same time, they're not there. They're not. It's not mm-hmm. where you are. So it feels like it's not something that you can be um, or should be. And so that's definitely in there. And that, and that's part of the fun of like 
playing in the DC universe because there are aliens in there. And so Taylor is not the only one, which would make it a very different story if she was the only alien um, on Earth. And it's like, no, there's other aliens, um, some aliens who pass better than you. Um, and everyone loves them. So maybe you should try harder. There's an element of that as well with the idolation of Superman. So and there's an element, too, of the fact that when when she's at, as an alien, the first thought from her and from Kat is, is you should be a superhero because that's what visible aliens do on Earth. Yeah, that's what they do. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the reason I love the DC universe in that way is because um, all aliens have superpowers. That's just a thing. It's, it's just what they do. Um, thank you, Legion of Superheroes, for setting that up. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> when, Taylor's, when Taylor's at school, after Taylor does uh, come out, essentially... It's, I thought it was really interesting the way the other students interact with her, the way like her her best friend does, um, the way the other girls like in the bathroom at one point do. That was, <clears throat> I mean, that was hard because not everybody, that was hard to read because not everybody is, is cool about it. Not every, Certainly not nearly as cool as, say, Kat or as Taylor's little sister. But that also rung true as well. Like that was how did she sort of walk the line between between metaphor and like thing that happens in our our real real world? There, that seems like that would require some uh, some dexterity to kind of land where you wanted there. Yeah. Um, well, I was not I was not out as queer as a teenager, um, and I was certainly not trans as a teenager. So I had to do a lot of reading of what uh, trans teens and young adults go through because um, I transitioned in my thirties. Um, and so a lot of that, um, those interviews and those books kind of revealed a lot of the similar stories of these kind of, um, confrontations or even subtler, like the thing in the bathroom where, um, the inference is very aggressive, but the actual language is not. And so I wanted to take, and so everything they talk about is something that has been, um, it's something that a, a, an actual trans person has experienced, but we've, we've put it in the language of aliens um, so that it's, uh, it fits the story and it's less um, uh, specific, uh, but it's all real. Right. And like the stuff with um, her best friend, Buck is, um, based on some interactions I myself have had with friends when I came out, even though coming out as adult, there was that feeling in some people of uh, of betrayal, of feeling like um, that I was hiding something from them, even though I wanted and and tried to come out um, earlier. And like all of that stuff um, is definitely drawn from both my experience and the experience of people I talked to and read about. So, yeah, I mean, it was, again, it was, it was a dance, like you said, to kind of keep that real. I didn't want to, even though this is a fantasy, I didn't want to exclude that. I wanted there to be um, just an awareness of how difficult these kind of transitions are. And, and I, I felt that was really important to include. So yeah, we've been we've been talking about like the the, the metaphor versus real life thing. Um, we've also been mm-hmm. talking about how in the DC universe, if you're an alien, you're going to be a superhero. I mean, Taylor even has like a superhero name, you know. 
that uh that the characters come up with but this is also like for a book in a superhero universe it is a pretty slice of life kind of thing like when you were when you were talking to dc about this when this book was sort of at its genesis like is that something where dc had strong opinions on what they wanted this book to be on that spectrum or is that something where you just sort of like had a story you wanted to tell and dc gave you the thumbs up or or what Ooh, that i'm super curious about that as well uh, I love this idea that DC itself came to me, <laughs> like the logo yes, <laughs> just, just showed up at my door. The embodied like, avatar of the talk. publisher. <laughs> right. Um, well, uh, I was very fortunate to work with Michelle Wells while she was at DC. And um, she was the one who hired me to do this story. And um, she, she loved it from pitch to um, all the way through its completion. And there was actually a um, a part of early in the um, genesis of this where I sent her a synopsis, and the ending had a more superhero ending. That there was going to be like a big fight. Uh, the vein don't show up, but a, a agent of the vein. Um, I had Lobo show up, <laughs> and because <laughs> why not? It seemed it seemed to fit, and he was going to show up, and they were going to fight, and and that was going to be the end, and. Um, Michelle read that and was like, this is not how the story ends. And you know that. I was like, I do know this. And, um, and the, what happened then is I took out that stuff and I put in the stuff I didn't want to write, but would have made it better, which is all the difficult stuff that we just talked about. And, um, and that gave the story a new shape. And that was the proper shape that it needed to be in. And so, yeah, it's not a traditional superhero story. I refer to it as a slow burn origin. Um, so that she's, she is finally in her superhero identity, but she doesn't have a costume yet uh, at the end. But it, it takes a while for her to discover that and to essentially save herself. That's her first rescue as a superhero is herself. Um, and, and yeah, and that was actually what they wanted. They wanted, um, certainly Michelle wanted a more YA narrative with this character and a more character-based story, which I was happy to do because that's what I love. Um, and, and that was the goal and that's what we did. So, yeah. Something else that really struck me about the story, and this is yeah, a major spoiler for a later event in it, um, and we should have said at the beginning that there would be spoilers, but <laughs> obviously, obviously there are and will be. Um, is the fact that that her her means of transformation gets broken? Um, and I I I've heard and, and used the language a lot of of coming out of, of the genie bottle metaphor for coming out that that once once that door is open, <clears throat> that door is open. And that was an especially visceral and interesting way to approach that. Why did you end up choosing to basically take away the means of her, her transformation? Because uh, I didn't want her to change back. And I, I wanted it to be um, that this is who she is. And to keep that device around meant that she could change back at any time. And I, I didn't want that. I wanted her to always have to be who she is because that felt right. Um, and I also wanted it to be damaged um, and her to be the cause of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is, spoilers, 
Uh, it's an accident, but it's it's something that I think um, like sometimes we do accidents and we actually mean to do them, and and that's something that I think uh, falls into that category. And it's also I think worth noting that like by locking her in that way, it also locks her, her family, family out, being, yeah, into mm-hmm. being human. That's exactly so, where I was about to go. Yeah, and so they have to deal with that, and um. I have a gajillion and four stories that I could tell with these characters. And like, there is, um, if, if the gods are willing, like stories where maybe they all go back to Siandi and they have to deal with that there. And do they get their Siandi forms back when they go? All of these things. But uh, it just put everybody in a really good position for the ending, which is that, we all now have to deal with Taylor being who she is. And we all have to deal with the fact now that we are who we are. And that just really kind of made everyone kind of reconsider um, the situation because of everything had pivoted. It also radically changes their power dynamics as, as a mm-hmm. family and as a unit, just in terms of the the threat of the vein coming and who is actually in a position to protect whom. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and that was something where uh, Taylor's brother, um, whose name I'm not thinking of right now. Carl. Carl, yes. Um, that was something I, I enjoyed with him is sort of seeing him reckon with that and getting the impression that, oh, this guy's had this entire arc to his life in hiding and his relationship with that, with protecting Taylor, with hiding from the vein, like we just get these little bits and pieces of, I think uh, him, him more than maybe any of the other members of Taylor's family that just, that just speak to this larger world. And that was something I enjoyed. Like, obviously it's, it's Taylor's story, but the interconnectedness is just so continually reinforced between her and everyone in her life. Well, he's the one who really has a larger world and larger frame of reference to speak to because the, the, the general who's who's posing as her father is is doing his job. He's got a mission that he's fulfilling. He is continuing the work he was doing. Sally doesn't have any prior memory of her, her previous life. She's too young. Taylor is obviously sort of the center of this, but Carl has the sort of unique experience of remembering his previous life, knowing what he's lost, and knowing why. Mm-hmm. Without necessarily having, you know, the the added impetus of a job or a mission or something that he voluntarily agreed to on top of it. Right. And we see his character mellow in yeah. a way. Um, once the possibility of him ever becoming Sandy is taken away. And that um rather than lead him into deeper despair, kind of gives him a chance to accept the reality he has and to make the most of that here. Whereas before it was always something that was within his reach, but he couldn't quite get himself to, to go for it. And then once that that's taken away, um, you can almost in the art, which I love, you can almost see like a weight off of his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's no longer as hunched over as uh, he was in the beginning of the book. He moves out of that sort of liminal temporary existence where everything is just perpetually for now. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, all the characters we've been talking about, we haven't talked about the amazing robot dog. I feel like we got to talk about the amazing robot dog. Right, the robot Corgi, no less. Yes. 
Argus is so wonderful. Oh. So Argus um, is part part of a science fiction tradition of, of corgis who are more than they seem. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. true. Well, like I wanted a talking dog in this and it had to be a corgi because corgis are very intelligent and they're herding dogs, right? So like it, it, it made sense to choose another breed would have been madness. <laughs> man and uh and yeah just argus's uh dedication to doing his job all the time to always reminding taylor like all right even you know i'm I'm still recording everything even if i'm powered off like he's just this tiny little warden that cannot be intimidating because he's a corgi it's just such a perfect balance yeah i love i love argus argus is i think the most fun to write out of out of any of the characters like just I just go into David Hyde Pierce mode and just uh, write his dialogue. And it's so fun because he's got a different perspective than everyone else. Like he knows what he's doing. (laughs) He knows what he's supposed to be doing. And he more than that, he knows what you're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And why aren't you doing it? (laughs) Because he's a herding dog. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, we don't we don't get to see all the cool things that Argus can do in this book, which is too bad. uh, because as his role as both bodyguard and recording equipment, uh, he's got a bunch of other cool little uh, superpowers that, because they were never needed, we don't get to see. Well, the knowledge and instincts of something that was supposed to be tiger-sized. Right, yeah. That's the other thing I love. is like He's supposed to be huge. Um, another reason to go back to Siandi so he can meet up with the other robots, protectors. And, uh, Just be tiny and ferocious. yeah. Oh man! So we've been talking a lot about <clears throat> about characters, uh, about metaphor. Are there any other kind of like major aspects we want to uh, we want to jump into while we're in this conversation? I feel like we've we've by virtue and vehicle of talking about the characters and metaphor covered a fair amount of the plot. Um, I haven't talked about cat any. We have not we talked cat. about cat. Oh we geez, yeah, of cat. course. We talked to cat about cat a little bit. We talked about cat when we were talking about fashion. Yeah, because <laughs> cat has the best outfits. Cat has the absolute um, best outfits. Cat's mom yeah, has it, very good outfits too, though. Cat's mom has a lot of great outfits. The the two of them together are so great, and that's another way that Taylor, uh, Jess, I shouldn't, I should have changed the name of the main character <laughs> when Jess was brought aboard, and I didn't think about it. Um, but Jess Taylor, not Taylor the character, Jess did such an amazing job of. Of bringing those characters to life and also uniting them, even though they have very different styles, so they do feel like mother and daughter, even though they don't dress the same, which I really love. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Cat is Cat is phenomenal. She is just this force of pure, mildly chaotic joy and just assertiveness. Like in in some ways, I mean, you know, obviously some big plot events occur that, for instance, make it so. Taylor stays in her true form, but like in in a lot of ways, Cat instigates so much of what's what's going on. She does, and and she has a little arc of her own, which I, I quite like. Which is she's very guarded and sad in the beginning, in a way that we only get kind of hints of, and in blossoms as the uh, the book goes on. Um, what of so the they things? Do help... Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, all right. Well, I was just saying they do help each other, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. It's something I wanted to have, and uh, I'm glad it, it's there. 
One of the things I love about Kat is that it feels like she's the protagonist of an intersecting story mm-hmm. that's right. taking place. Like, we could do a whole story about Kat and, and her art and what she's doing and, and her life and her dad and why they left Metropolis and all that stuff. I would, maybe we will one day, who knows? Fingers but, very, very much crossed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot to mine in that character and, and, she she's great um she's based off of uh an old girlfriend i had and my, also my current wife and <laughs> a few other people um but just this uh just this person who when you meet them you want to be better you want to be your best self for them mm-hmm. and then and I, I I like that that's what Taylor sees in Cap, but also that turns around and then becomes what Cat sees in Taylor as well. Yeah, yeah. Just this this whole thing where as Taylor becomes more authentic, Taylor just becomes this this inspiration. And also, like, I really appreciate. I, I was so relieved as the story went on. I'm like, oh, there's not going to be one of those misunderstanding based like relationship threatening fights. Like, they just get to be good girlfriends. And yeah, there are some hard parts, but like, we just get yeah. to be happy for them. Excellent. Yeah, there was so much drama and things going on elsewhere in the book to add them having a conflict um, in a in a in a larger way rather than the small little one they have is uh, would be too much. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to admit, I went through like the first half of the book convinced that either either Cat or her mom was going to turn out to be be an agent for the the vein <laughs> for the vein. Yeah. Yep. That would have been a very different book. Yes, and <laughs> I'm, I'm very relieved that it wasn't. I, <laughs> one of one of my favorite experiences in reading is thinking that I'm seeing accurate predictors and then being genuinely and completely surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of this book was to talk about how um, being trans is beautiful and how queer love is transformative. And so, to do that, we had to have a very um, simple but intense relationship with. The two main characters, and that's something that's superhero comics. It's, it's yeah. um, Clark Kent and Lois Lane. You know, it's like these characters are forever linked, and if there's any bumps on the road in their future, like we know that it's they're going to get back together. And they've got that great Clark and Lois dynamic of being inspired by each other too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we are, I think, running a little bit low on time. Um, before I forget, Jadiel, where can folks both find the book and find you online well they should be able to find the book at any place comics are sold um so your local comic book shop uh bookstore uh i know barnes and noble amazon whatever you what's your poison as far as how you get your books it should be there um i have heard anecdotally a lot of people say that it is hard to find because it keeps getting sold out at places um so just ask them to order more there's plenty. Um, so that would be the way to do it. As far as finding me, I don't know why you'd want to, but just in case. Um, I follow you on, on Twitter. You're delightful. Oh, thank you. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Planet X. I'm also on Instagram at Planet X. And there's my website, jedziaaxelrod.com, which has um, more stuff about me. And we'll stick uh, direct links to all of those at explainthexmen.com um, if you yeah. click back after listening. So, yeah, Galaxy the Prettiest Star. Good stuff. Thanks thanks for making it and, and for letting us read it. We enjoyed the hell out of it. 
Oh, I'm so glad. We'll be back next week with Explain the X-Men Proper. Meanwhile, Jadzia, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for supporting Equality Florida. Oh, well, I mean, I was able to do a good thing and support a good fight and also be on my favorite podcast. It's win-win. We are happy to have you. Hell yeah. Thank you.